Why did Britain go to war with Germany in 1914? The curious thing is that in the years leading up to the First World War, Britain's most serious headache was not with Germany, but with Russia. The Russians were threatening Britain's key routes to India, which lay through Persia. The obvious thing for the British to do was to ally with the Germans, who were just as anxious as they were to prevent Russia's steady expansion south. But something prevented the British government from allying with the Germans. Partly, it was secret talks the British army had been conducting, with a nod and a wink from a few in government. The British army was actively committing itself to support the French in a war against the Germans. But partly, it was anti-German hysteria in the press, and more surprisingly, in the Foreign Office. Well, where had that come from? Hello. Good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. In the years before the First World War, Britain's key strategic problem was Russia's expansion south into Persia and the land routes to India. One obvious solution was for the British to ally with the Germans, who then shared a European border with the Russians and were equally alarmed by their expansionist plans. But since the end of the 1890s, and particularly since 1905 or 1906, the Germans have popularly come to be seen in Britain not as the solution to Britain's strategic difficulties, but as a serious threat in themselves. By 1909, German tourists in Britain, consulting railway timetables or buying phrase books, were being reported to the police as spies. In Sevenoaks and Kent, German campers were arrested for using torches. The Daily Mail was demanding a ban on foreign pigeon flying near army bases and naval dockyards. Where had this bizarre hysteria come from? The first place, according to historian John Ramsden, was a fictional thriller. Fictional. The publishing phenomenon of 1906 by half-French author William Lecue. It was called The Invasion of 1910. Lecue imagined the Germans marching through England, leaving bodies swinging from telegraph poles and massacring passengers at London's St Pancras railway station. He included several supposedly genuine documents, including the surrender signed by the Mayor of London. Well, after H.G. Wells, Le Cue was the most popular writer in Britain at the time, commanding the same writer's fee as Thomas Hardy. So why did Le Cue imagine the Germans invading Britain? After all, Germany was normally Britain's best trading partner, and the two had plenty of common cultural and strategic interests. Well, you see, Le Cue had already written an invasion novel back in 1897. In that one, called The Great War in England, Britain was invaded by its traditional enemy, the French, backed by their allies, the Russians. The book had done very well, and we can imagine that Le Cue was hoping to write another. But by 1906, for reasons to do with various issues scattered around the empire, Britain had signed an entente with France and a convention with Russia. So, Le Cue was in need of a new enemy. Spain, Italy, Austria, a bit too distant or too feeble. So out of the European powers, who might believably be imagined invading England, that only left Germany. 
Le Q made his books as realistic as possible. If his invading Germans staked out a bell tower and a village church, Le Q made sure it was a real bell tower in a real village. He had his imaginary German invasion plans checked out by Britain's most senior soldier, the elderly Field Marshal Lord Roberts, a veteran of the Boer War. Creating a German invasion scare happened to suit Roberts, who was himself touring schools lecturing on the threat of Germany. For him, it was a clever way to drum up recruits for the army, and support for his campaign to introduce conscription. Roberts made the threat of a German invasion sound even worse than Lequeux did. In fact, he really believed it might happen. His lectures accused German civilians in Britain of being, quotes, almost all trained soldiers, adding that there must be at least 80,000 of them. Well, that was extremely unlikely, since there were only 50,000 Germans in Britain, including women and children. Most people usually imagine Britain would always be invaded through Kent. But the last time that occurred was 1066. Roberts knew that Kent's high cliffs and difficult marshes would make invasion extremely difficult for a modern army. Hitler's Wehrmacht came to the same conclusion in 1940, as we see in our series on the Battle of Britain. Back in 1906, following Roberts' strategic advice, Lequeux had the Germans land in the flatlands of Essex. It made the book seem much more realistic, though only, of course, if you omitted to mention the insurmountable obstacle of the British Royal Navy. A government inquiry of 1903 had shown conclusively that the Royal Navy was so utterly dominant that no army had any chance whatsoever of invading Britain. The owner of the Daily Mail, Lord Northcliffe, spotted a good thing. He took the decision to serialise Le Q's tale. Northcliffe, like many in Britain's traditionally rather right-wing press, believed the average Briton warmed to, quote, a good hate. Well, <laughs> while Germany was his own particular favourite, Northcliffe died in 1922, believing the Germans had poisoned him with ice cream. Mm. From the 19th of March 1906, Lequeux's invasion came out in the Daily Mail in daily instalments. On the route through Essex that Roberts had originally worked out, the Germans sneaked into London almost unseen. Well, that was no good for Northcliffe. He told Lequeux there was no point in the Germans marching through what he called one-eyed Essex villages where he wouldn't sell many papers. So in the Daily Mail version, the Germans spread out and they proceeded to terrorise every town from Chelmsford to Sheffield. The newspapers carried maps of each day's German advance and were marketed by men walking around London in Prussian uniforms. But it was all an excellent joke. The novel and its serialisation in the Daily Mail was a huge hit. Eventually, the novel sold one million copies worldwide. Everyone in Britain now seemed to be talking about the Q, even though few people knew how to pronounce his name, which was spelled... Q-U-E-U-X, and they probably called him Quex. He became known as, quote, the man who dared to tell the truth. Boy's Own magazine warned its million young readers that German holidaymakers were all spies. You could tell, said Boy's Own, because they wore Prussian boots. As we saw last time, the so-called Prussian boots were probably being handmade in London's German street. That's spelt J-E-R-M-Y-N, nothing to do with Germans. The queue followed up in 1909 with a new novel, Spies of the Kaiser. He informed his readers he was part of military intelligence and had only changed details in his books to protect his sources. It was a straight lie. He had no formal contact with intelligence, only with a collection of amateur agents who styled themselves, quote, the Voluntary Secret Service Department. He ended his new book with a warning, quotes, What will happen? When will Germany strike? Who knows? 
The Daily Mail now began receiving letters from members of the public who'd read Spies of the Kaiser and had German spies to report. Thousands of the letters arrived, which wasn't surprising since the Mail had promised £10, an enormous sum in 1909, for each one it printed. Many of the letters were clearly written as a joke, but Lecue sent them to a friend, Lieutenant Colonel James Edmonds, head of Special Section for Intelligence at the War Office. Astonishingly, Edmonds took them at face value, quotes, regretting that newspapers committed more resources than governments to finding spies. <laughs> what might have gone down in history as an amusing publishing phenomenon now became something altogether more bizarre. Christopher Andrew, author of the official history of British military intelligence, has shown that Edmonds took these Daily Mail letters, fakes, jokes and all, to Richard Haldane, the War Secretary. There he used them to campaign for an official inquiry into German espionage. Even more surprising, Edmonds succeeded. You couldn't make it up. What turned the scale, Edmonds later wrote, was a letter from Francis Bennett Goldney, the Tory mayor of Canterbury. The mayor reported two Germans he'd found wandering in his park. He meant, of course, his own private estate. Well, he'd invited them in to dinner, and after drinking a good deal of his port, they told him they were spies, reconnoitring for a German landing in Margate and other seaside towns, leading up to an attack on London. Well, these wandering Germans were clearly playing, comments historian Christopher Andrew, a very British practical joke. But the mayor took them at their word. So, of course, did Lieutenant Colonel Edmonds. Even the Secretary of State for War, Richard Haldane, began to believe that a German spy network might in fact be operating in Britain. If all that seems far-fetched to you, it makes more sense when you discover the shocking things that have been going on behind the scenes in the Foreign Office. By 1909, the British press was screeching in full hysterical voice about the threat of German spies. Now, you have to remember that Britain has historically always had a fundamentally right-wing press, and the government in 1909 was liberal. So the press would use any stick with which to beat it, and German spies proved an exceptionally popular stick with the newspaper-believing public. On its own, this press craze might not have led to the killing and wounding of the 37 million people in the First World War. But the anti-German newspaper headlines chimed all too chillingly with what was going on inside the Foreign Office. Back in 1969, historian Zara Steiner showed that in the 1890s there was a significant break in continuity in the Foreign Office. A clique of civil servants there, and also in the War Office, began working to turn British foreign policy against Germany. According to Steiner, there never seemed to be a specific reason for these men's dislike of the Germans. What most of these shadowy Whitehall men found disagreeable seems simply to have been what they saw as the Germans' unpleasant tone of voice. But the clue is perhaps in their education, something hardly any historian has investigated. One later head of the Foreign Office, Sir Robert Van Sittart, wrote that he'd first come across the Germans when he was reading the ancient historian Tacitus at Eton. Tacitus, wrote Van Sittart, quotes, admired the Germans in some ways, but found them disquieting neighbours. He says that they hate peace. Their whole history can be summed up in one phrase. They, quotes, think it weak to win with sweat, what can be won by blood. 
Well, if that was the way Tacitus was being taught at Eton at the end of the 19th century, it's no wonder, then, that so many of the Foreign Office bureaucrats were anti-German. In the years just before the First World War, when Van Sittart joined the Foreign Office, three quarters of those who arrived with him had been educated at, guess where, Eton. In the decades before, the proportion had been apparently even higher. You have to understand, the Foreign Office was a very small place before the First World War, around 50 First Division clerks, the men who had any say in making policy. Although they were working harder than they had, the Foreign Office was still described as, quote, more of a gentleman's club than a professional department of government. Its clerks, said one wag at the time, were like the fountains in Trafalgar Square. They played from ten till five. It was the last place, said another, where, quotes, administration was pursued as a sport. Until 1905, Van Sittard and every single other man who got a job at the Foreign Office had been pushed through the entrance exam by a certain Mr Schoons, who ran a crammer next door to the Garrett Club. This was a tiny, introverted and cocksure elite of old Etonians. Once the fashion for bashing the Germans had taken hold among a certain clique of this little set, it quickly and easily became very influential. Now, generations of British schoolchildren have been brought up on the belief that before the First World War, the Germans were a very real and present threat to Britain. But is it true? Certainly, Germany had become an industrial giant that was alarmingly outpacing the United Kingdom. And it was impossible to miss a certain German enthusiasm for war, if not among bankers, industrialists or the public at large, then among certain high-profile German intellectuals and political activists. Novelists like Thomas Mann and Hermann Hesse seemed to think a good war would cure what they saw as Germany's bourgeois complacency, its, quote, dull capitalist peace. Sexologist and gay campaigner Magnus Hirschfeld openly looked forward to a time when men wore uniforms and carried guns. Retired Prussian General Friedrich von Bernardi announced in his book called Germany in the Next War that it was, quote, world power or decline and he called excitedly for the total destruction of France. His book, which of course had no official status, went through six editions in a year. Even German liberal politicians and academics were airily lecturing about the future breakup of the British Empire and the chance that Germany might profit from this, quote, legacy. Right-wing pan-Germanists in the German press and the Reichstag took up the social Darwinist notion that the races of Europe were in competition. Sooner or later, the Germans would inevitably have to fight a preventative war with Russian Slavs and French Romans and the British Anglo-Saxons. Kaiser Wilhelm was infamously talking an aggressive foreign policy and discoursing about a racial war. Now, most historians nowadays conclude that all this was just a mixture of crackpot turn-of-the-century philosophy and German insecurity. German politicians were deeply divided, and the German economy was badly stretched by the Kaiser's wild schemes. Wilhelm himself was in fact much more interested in signing a treaty with the British than in trying to compete with them. There's certainly no evidence at all that the Germans had any plans for expansion into Western Europe, rather the opposite. What exercised German politicians and military men most at the turn of the 20th century was that their new nation, united only in 1871, might not survive. War might be necessary in order to prevent Germany's enemies from overwhelming and destroying her. Now, leaving aside the so-called naval race for a minute, perhaps it's above all the Schlieffen plan that has persuaded succeeding generations that the Germans were set on world domination. 
This was the German General Staff's bold, not to say daft, scheme to knock France out in 42 days by a lightning march across Belgium. Of course, looked at from the British, not to say French or Belgian perspective, it looks like a plan for a war of naked aggression. But German-Canadian historian Holger Herwig has argued that we have misunderstood the Schlieffen plan. We need to look at it from the other way round, from the German end. This wasn't an arrogant military blueprint for occupying Belgium in France, for which in fact the Germans had made no provision at all. Instead, it was a last desperate attempt to secure Germany's western border before turning to face what looked to German analysts at the time like a vast, inevitable and almost certainly unwinnable war against the Russians. Many in the German army knew that the Schlieffen plan was unrealistic. It had originally been worked out in the 1890s by Count Alfred von Schlieffen, chief of the German general staff. His predecessor had warned that a war would last seven years, and perhaps as many as 30. Schlieffen's own quartermaster concluded that modern war would be siege warfare, quotes, a tedious and bloody crawling forward step by step. So the Schlieffen plan was a desperate attempt at a shortcut to prevent a long war by means of a lightning strike. It was not the aggressive gung-ho fantasy of a war-hungry German military elite bent on global domination. It was a despairing gamble, hedged about with ifs, perhaps, and hopefullys. Looked at from the German perspective, it was a grim last throw a last chance to prevent Germany being sucked by Russia into a cataclysm that would destroy her. What lay behind all these German demands for war, then, was a German feeling not of strength, but of weakness, and above all fear in the face of the awakening of Russia. Fueled by French money, Russia was starting, very slowly and painfully, to emerge as a monstrous industrial and military machine. Better, many Germans believed, to take the Russians on sooner rather than be steamrolled by them in the end. If, therefore, there was some German enthusiasm for a military conflict, it was because of the Germans' deep-seated fear that before much longer, the Russians would actually wipe them out. Now, as we saw last time, German fear of Russia coincided strikingly with Britain's long-held and growing mistrust of the Russians and of their obvious plans to expand into the Middle East and Central Asia. It made Germany and Britain natural allies. But to some Foreign Office civil servants, that counted for nothing. Instead of making common cause with the Germans, all they saw was the menacing buzz of German factories and the ominous rattling of German sabres. Without any actual evidence, as we'll see, they convinced themselves that the Germans were bent on an aggressive war, not to defeat the Russians, but to dominate Britain, Europe and maybe even the world. Germany was not a possible solution to Britain's tricky foreign policy challenges. Germany was the problem. By 1910, anti-German hysteria had infected not only the popular press, but also a certain section of the Foreign Office. It was based on a fundamental misunderstanding of German intentions. Perhaps the most generous way of interpreting these anti-German bureaucrats has been proposed by historian Thomas Ott, himself an advisor to the modern Foreign Office. Ott argues that the Foreign Office's aim was to keep the balance of power in Europe. 
The fear was that France and Russia were both too weak and Germany too strong. The danger was that the French and the Russians would cave in and be forced to do a deal with Berlin. And according to this anti-German clique, this would be a global disaster. Give the Germans an inch and they would seize the whole continent, probably the British Empire as well. Now, all this may seem fanciful to us, but, says Ott, it was based on two things. First, the comforting illusion that Britain held the balance of power and could govern world events just by choosing which side to join. Secondly, it was based on particularly poor intelligence about Germany, especially after 1908, when the British ambassador in Berlin was Sir Edward Goshen, who'd been about to retire, and despite being half German himself, was, quote, neither willing nor capable of making close contacts with the German ruling elite. The result was that this foreign office clique badly misinterpreted German policy and created a myth of assertive German expansionism that had very little basis in reality. To these two, we might add a third. Until the turn of the century, very few recruits to the Foreign Office knew any history. <laughs> no wonder they so spectacularly misinterpreted what was going on. This anti-German bias in the Foreign Office was also, paradoxically, the result of so many years concentrating on Russia and the problems that Russia was causing in Persia. Many of the top men in the Foreign Office were Russian experts, notably Charles Harding, who was the permanent undersecretary head of the Foreign Office from January 1906 and who just returned from the post of ambassador to Russia. The problems of Europe came to be seen from the Russian point of view, not because Russians were easy to deal with, they were exactly the opposite, but because most of the senior men at the Foreign Office had long experience of dealing with them. The Germans, on the other hand, were relatively unknown to the Foreign Office and their behaviour a bit too brusque for English gentlemanly taste. Too many at the Foreign Office mistook it for aggression. Historian Christopher Clarke has shown that the anti-German bureaucrats were always a minority at the British Foreign Office and War Office, but they intrigued together to secure the top positions and twist British foreign policy. Eventually, for example, they manoeuvred in Harding's friend, Lord Francis, the Bull Bertie, as the British ambassador in Paris. This was the man who once wrote that the Germans, quote, want to push us into the water and steal our clothes. One of the most influential of the anti-Germans was Eyre Crow, Eyre spelt E-Y-R-E. He was senior clerk at the Foreign Office. Crow was a fastidious, not to say humourless individual, who'd got his place not because he went to Eton, he didn't, but because he was half German. It put him at a distinct social disadvantage in the Foreign Office, which is perhaps why Crow worked harder and had stronger opinions than anyone else. Up to 1906, his most notable achievement had been the invention of a new filing card system, which everyone in the Foreign Office was supposed to use. Crow had grown up in Leipzig in the German state of Saxony and he had a German wife. What Crow disliked was not Germans in general, but Prussians. Prussia had been just one of many small German countries until, drawing on its industrial strength and military traditions, it had strong-armed the rest into forming a united Germany in 1871. Like many Saxons and other Germans, Crow believed that the Prussians, with their military monocles and abrupt manners, had simply bullied their way ruthlessly into control over other German states. Just like Le Queux and the readers of the Daily Mail, he saw German conspiracies, by which he meant Prussian conspiracies, everywhere. Now, while his Etonian colleagues were recovering from their hangovers, Crow spent New Year's Day, January 1907, composing a long and earnest memo about the European situation. Nobody had commissioned Air Crow to do it, but he took it on himself to circulate it round the Foreign Office. 
The Germans, he wrote, had conducted, quote, dubious proceedings in Zanzibar. They'd meddled in the Yangtze and had, quote, unsavoury relations with newspapers, even in London. Their influence had been growing for two decades, aimed at ruling Europe, driving the British off the high seas. It was not going too far, Crow Huff, to say that Britain's existence was at stake. <laughs> Maybe Crow's hangover hadn't worn off either. But this extravagant, mad rhetoric was typical of the man. His piece of New Year hysteria reached Foreign Secretary Gray, who lazily endorsed it and sent it on to the Prime Minister, the Leader of the Lords, Haldane and other Cabinet Ministers. As it wormed its way through Whitehall, Crow's memo only confirmed, writes historian Keith Wilson, quote, the invention of Germany as the key threat. The invention of Germany as the key threat. What men like Crow said mattered because, unlike most civil service departments, the Foreign Office took little notice of politicians. It mostly decided British foreign policy itself. And that was particularly true after 1906, when the Liberal Party was in government. A Liberal government was very much not to the taste of the men at the Foreign Office, and especially Harding, Bertie and their Etonian friends. Which is why Aircrow's fantastic New Year invention about Germany threatening Britain's very existence is still what many people continue to believe about the Germans. There is one very well-known example. We keep hinting at it. Nudge, any schoolchild, mugging up on the causes of the First World War, and one of the first things you'll be told is that the primest of prime causes was the Anglo-British naval race. It is, of course, complete nonsense. As we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. History Cafe.